Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Skullcast, the premier podcast about Berserk from the community at Skullnight.net. I am your eternal host, Walter, and joining me today for episode 138 are Azil. Hi. Grail. Hello. And Gobolatula. Hello. Everybody, welcome back. It's been about a month since we last were in front of the microphones. And our primary reason for being here today is to wrap up, get closer to the end of Volume 29 in the uh, Reread Project. It's been kind of quiet on the Berserk front. Um, Dark Horse did announce, I think it was just yesterday or maybe two days ago, that the 14th Deluxe Edition, which is the most recent, catches everything up, right, is going to have Volumes 40, 41, and there's this like gap there because there is no 42 in Japan or the U.S. yet. So they're filling that last slot, that third slot, with the uh, official guidebook or the Dark Horse translation of the guidebook. So effectively, there are no um, you know, new Berserk continuation episodes mm. in this deluxe. That's how they maneuvered it, basically. Because the alternative was waiting a bit to have Volume 42 stitched in there. But I don't think they're quite close to getting there. It would have been at least a year out. For them if they were going to wait for volume 42 so yeah and it's also complex for them because you you've got to release a standard volume first before you yep. release a deluxe edition of it otherwise you're cutting off your own sales you know what i mean mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. yeah there's that aspect but um, the bottom line of this is that while the guidebook is not not very interesting i mean outside of mira's interview that's great the guidebook itself is mostly just a waste of space. Um, but yeah, it's still pretty, I mean, it's still nice that there's no overlap between uh, Mira's Berserk, the real Berserk, and the continuation project by Mori and staff, which is, uh, well, let's just say it is what it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, effectively bookended. You could you could put a little book in there yeah. and say, that's And they give Berserk. you options. Yeah. Yeah, we Dragon Slayer bookends, <laughs> Guts and Griffith ones. Oh my God, right. the new ones are so bad. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, that's not, there's new there's new Berserk bookends from Dark Horse. Uh, we never talked about them. I don't really care about them. Yeah. They're, they're, kind of ex- they're kind of expensive too. Uh, yeah. yeah. So as you may know, there used to be the one with the Dragon Slayer with the handle at one end skewering your volumes, and then the other end was the end of the Dragon Slayer, right? The now the new one is just a busts one of Griffith, one of Guts. And they're kind of like just, they're they're fine. It's yeah. not worth three hundred dollars or whatever it is. Yeah. Anyway, it's nice uh, for there to be that demarcation between uh, between the real series and what comes after. That's the the bottom line for me. Uh-huh. A small gesture, even even if that wasn't the intent. Yeah. Uh, the only other thing to discuss is the Blu-ray of the Berserk Memorial Edition animation was recently released in Japan. Uh, so that is out now for those that want it, want it. Uh, it's pretty, it's pretty expensive, mm. um, but it's out there. Yeah, that's it. No other release news to discuss. Uh, so we'll get on into it, uh, with the continuation, sorry, <laughs> with the reread, the continuation of the reread. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to start out by doing a little mea culpa here. That means kind of my bad for, um, Whenever I was summarizing the purpose of volume 29, you know, in the last episode, I had said something like, I think it's about the kind of food chain between um, Van Demian trying to hold the whole world, but couldn't. And then Ganeshka trying to hold the whole world, but couldn't. 
and then ultimately Griffith swallows him up. That was kind of what I thought was the theme of things. I just, it's so much simpler than that. It's about family. It's family. That's my Vin Diesel impression. <laughs> so like, you know, the first half-ish of volume 29 is establishing the familial bonds of Guts Group, which is like a informal family, right? That was, that was a, what's the word? Nurtured, um, not by blood. And then we contrast that with when Farnese and we are introduced to the Vandimian side of the family and their bonds are just non-existent or are just purely, you know, what's the word through manipulations. So yeah, to me, that's like the thrust, the feeling behind the whole volume is contrasting Farnese's uh, fostered family with guts versus her real family, which is a Vandimian. So Mm. that made more sense to me as the summary of the volume. So I just wanted to correct that little, little turn from last time. That's all. Uh, and I will start. Uh, I have the first episode in the lineup uh, with the episode titled Vandimian. Shirke begins her training with Farnese with a simple exercise about visualizing an apple with her mind. This is the first step in becoming a magic user, making a firm image of a concept in one's mind. <clears throat> Among other things, this is the basis for how Shirke can manifest her body of light and traverse the astral world. Isidro and Serpico report back after a day wasted at the docks because no one has a ship available to them. Everything has been committed to the war effort. But Farnese has an idea and steps out with Serpico. Her sword with its family crest, a four-leaf clover, was visible to us as we turn the page and see that same crest on a huge mansion, the Vandemian estate. Inside, Magnifico is arguing with his father, Federico, that he's proven himself and deserves a real title like his brother's. But Federico says that all he's done is walk the path that was laid for him. As Magnifico leaves, Federico is told that Farnese is here. He's brusque and cold with his daughter, telling her that she was assumed dead, but now she's alive despite her holy iron chain knights having been decimated. And it seems that she was destined to bring dishonor to the family name. And in his presence, Farnese reverts to a docile state, unable to make the request for the ship, and instead follows her father's orders to stay here at the mansion. That is the end of the episode. Uh, a couple notes before I open it up. The first is that the Vandemian Estates design, or at least the front end of the design, is based on a real structure. You know, Mira often does that with scenic things. This one is called the Villa La Rotunda in Italy. Italy. Uh, what else? The family crest. I thought that was neat. A four leaf clover. I don't recall if we've seen it before. Maybe we saw it in snow, fire, snow flames. I don't remember, but it's a four leaf clover, um, which of course implies luck, but through the context of how the Vandemian clan operates, it's more like manipulation. Like, Oh wow. They're so lucky. How'd they get all this money? Like, because they (laughs) manipulated everything. Uh, Vandemian himself, I've always really liked him and I can't, I don't have a good way of explaining why, um, he comes across as very cold and robotic, but, uh, despite that, I don't know, there's something about him. (laughs) Um, he kind of traded familial warmth for cold power. And the way that's kind of the way I read his character is that, you know, in a way he traded something to, uh, Mm. his family sacrificed, um, I'm using the word sacrifice like a berserk. I'm saying he gave up familial ties for power basically in a way Mm. the other thing i wanted to note is interesting is that guts is resting throughout this whole sequence of this volume not just this episode but in the next as well you know you see him make an effort to stand up i think two episodes from now so it's really made clear that 
it's serious. You know, the toll the armor has taken and the injuries that he sustained in previous battles, it's a big change for Guts, just even from two volumes ago, you know? Yeah. He's having to really just basically be carted around like, you know, a statue almost uh, to prepare for the next battle and then wheel him out, prop him up, and pull the ripcord whenever a battle starts. Cause he's <laughs> I just, love that. Yeah. <laughs> I love how fucked up Guts is. It's like, yeah. I feel I bad ch- for him. It, it well, shows, yeah, me too. It shows the toll I mean, that Yamo takes. Exactly. Yeah. It's just made so much more, I don't know, serious or startling to me in this episode because it's like Shirke is having to feed him uh, and care for him in the same way they're having to care for Casca, although Casca's a little more of a nu- nuisance, of course. Well, she doesn't have to feed him, but she really wants to. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Um, oh, right. The, the magic thing. So I wanted to pull a little uh, uh, excerpt from the guidebook interview from 2016. Because Mira does explicitly mention the, the basis for this scene. So the episode starts with this apple that Shirke is holding an apple in her hand. And um, in this interview uh, with Mira, he says that I went in search of lots of reference books on magic. And amongst them was a book written by someone claiming to be a real magician. It sounds shady at first, but there are magic users overseas and they have the authoritative opinions on the subject. So I thought I'd faithfully portray the way a real magician conceptualizes magic. I got my reference materials in order and decided to ponder what true magic was, or even just the impression thereof. And what I actually learned was that magic was more of an inner thing than I thought. It's like you generate a chain of images within you and then refresh them. Then it becomes crucial to paint a precise picture of that sensation. It's not like you chant a spell and then something pops into being. When you use magic, the important thing is to visualize the spell being carried out one layer higher, the astral world, that is, and to precisely envision the vague imagery. Unless you do that, you can't express the magic of which real magic users speak. Mm. I'll tell you what, when I read uh, this episode again, as part of the thing of the reread, I was like, hmm, it is strikingly similar to the process, the artistic process, of a mangaka or even an artist, you know, the ability mm-hmm. to visualize something in your mind. Right, that's true. To evoke I it. I thought of that. And even the way uh, Shirke describes it, she uses the Japanese word imeji, uh, which uh, is translated as just images you know, by Dark Horse. But as uh, some of you who uh, follow the Patreon stuff know, that word in, in Japanese it doesn't just mean like a, a picture, it's like a mental image. So, and that's also something Muras talked about a lot in his interviews. So, yeah, that was interesting to me. Hmm. By the way, do you, do you mm-hmm. guys remember that whole thing we did with the apple back in the day on the forum? I do. I actually, I was looking that up this morning and I don't know that that thread survived the several changeovers, but I do remember the jokes. Like the whole idea, it was like, honestly, memes before memes were memes and Shirke holding the apple. The apple was replaced with various things. Like, I can't yeah. remember all the different things. That oh, were I think replaced. I saw some edits of that back in the day. I could be yeah. remembering. The good old days. The good old days. Yeah. I think I had one where she was holding Foss's head. because Back it's also when apples smooth. were apples. Like an apple. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think mine must still be up because I host everything on my own server. Yeah, you made it look like a behirit. You made the apple look like a behirit, and someone <laughs> replied saying, "Is that real?" And I was like, no, it's just, a, just an edit, dude. Yeah, she's gonna sacrifice <laughs> to gain true power. Fuck this yeah. magic stuff. I want to be to got teeth and, and many arms and 
<laughs> That's it for me. There's just several notes I've made. Um, well, yeah. Let me jump in then. About yeah, the cover thing. Yes, the cover thing shows up. In fact, when Farnese first appears in the series in volume 14, she's got clovers on her oh, yeah. armor and stuff. So yeah, it's a. Uh, it's more of a wink-wink, remember that? Or not nope. even that, it's just basically uh, being consistent with what has done before. So yeah, that, that's been a family crest from the beginning. Um, beyond that, uh, one thing that was interesting to me to point out is Dark Horse, they translate her name as Farnese Do Vandimian. I think it shows up in this one and, uh, and for the others as well. But in Japanese, do is used for the French uh, nobilitary particle de, basically, because they don't have the equivalent. Mm -hmm. So I think that's probably um, a mistake on their part. Basically, it should be de, d, and e. Uh, and it's interesting to me that Mira made that choice because uh, Farnese and Vendimion are Italian names. So of Italian origin, and clearly the family is inspired by that. Uh, but Italian particles for names are written differently. Uh, for example, D or D. Uh, but yeah, he chose to use Do. So maybe in order to stick to a single system, because that's already how he refers to the Wyndham family, you know, Charlotte and stuff like that. Uh, because they are all speaking the same language in the Berserk's world. Either way, I thought that was an interesting thing to mention because it comes up a lot in this volume. And I don't think Dark Horse translation is, is correct in, the, in this case. Um, so yeah, and you know, that aside, um, I do, I do like Magnifico's introduction in this. Uh, I think he's a kind of a nuanced character and he becomes more, more of a funny buffoon later yeah. on. But when he comes up, it's interesting. He's like the third brother, uh, the one that's not getting a lot of love and, uh, he's got a lot of ambition, but basically getting rebuked by his father and, kind of trying to scheme in his corner. So, I don't know, just uh, just an interesting character. And I liked how he's introduced. I do like yeah. that he's much ta he's taking things more seriously than any other part of the series we see him in, in these next three episodes. Uh, it is kind of shocking to compare this Magnifico to the one that we've seen the past couple of years. Oh, uh, yeah, he actually you know. looks like a person. Yeah, exactly. He's not <laughs> yeah. constantly super deformed and constantly is now i love it when his mouth opens it to an insane degree oh, but, me too <laughs> uh, it's just a very different feeling character here i kind of sympathize with him in a way it's also it's also in a way because and that's interesting but we will get into that in the next reread in the next podcast but at this point he's within his element what he's always yeah. grown in and uh, we see at the balls that he strives for more, kind of like Roderick. He wants to conquer the world and he's got these, all these ambitions. But his father was right in that he's not really cut out for, for more than what he was doing. And basically, as soon as he's faced with the supernatural and then the, the sea voyage, he's just, I mean, he basically transformed into a useless, bumbling idiot, basically. Yep. So I think that also, in a way... The evolution of his character is not, I mean, it doesn't feel like dissonant to me when you, even when look, looked at it from afar. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it is pretty funny to see that evolution. One thing I wanted to point out about the episode that stood out to me is just how big uh, a part architecture plays. Mm -hmm. First, you start out with the part where Magnifico is talking to Federico, and it's just like in this really ornate library. 
But as we pull out and, and get to the part with Farnese, I feel like her expressions and just kind of being dwarfed by the huge space that they're in is uh, really interesting and kind of a cool contrast to the kind of the cramped in space. And it just does more with the contrasting of Guts and company with where Farnese is in this episode and in later episodes. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the cramped quarters of the little place that they're staying or the little... Uh, you mean guts group, for example, versus this? Yeah, right. Yeah, for right. Yeah. and it's also so. There's a, a coldness also to go back to what Walter was saying earlier about the the Van Diemen family. You know these giant marble walls, giant floors. Everything is kind of empty. Uh, when he walks in, you know it's like echoing his steps. Yeah, it's right. A, it's very how to say. Yeah, it's very cold. Yeah, and it sort of feels like in this. This episode and further episodes, we're kind of going back to revisiting the palatial spaces, the political intrigue of uh, what we were seeing during the Golden Age uh, volumes and how you're just sort of dealing with that aspect of life in Berserk versus just the monsters and the religious stuff. So it's kind of interesting how Mir is kind of pulling back into that space a little bit. And I just thought it was uh, really interesting. And also the Vandemians, uh, maybe this is an obvious thing. They always make me think of the Medici family from uh, mm. like the Renaissance Florence. And their symbol was an orange. So it's a different <laughs> different <laughs> symbol. But I guess it's it's kind of cool. I always think of them because of the how big they were like the big, powerful family mm. at the time. That's true. And um, yeah, I, I do think like it makes sense to see that as a as kind of an inspiration. Two big families, yeah. What's interesting comparing this to the Golden Age is that the Golden Age is a very, how to say, the political intrigue is centered around the royal family. Mm-hmm. But here we see an, another aspect of what things might have been like historically, which kind of, of course inspired this fantasy version which is that there were very powerful noble houses that had as much, if not more, power than some royal families uh, because they had just had so much money, basically. And money, you know, equates power. And that's kind of what we see when uh, Magnifico is speaking to his father about his uh, his brothers who are like, uh, you know, head of some bank. The other one was placed in the, you know, in the Holy See hierarchy. And so it's basically their father is like, even though he's just a, a businessman, in a sense, he's still very, very powerful. Which makes you think of the Sopranos and how Tony's, <laughs> he's in waste management. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think he does go into like a, a waste management office once in the series. <laughs> yeah. um, and Federico, I mean, he's, he's placed his kids in positions of power ultimately that benefit him because... That gives him leverage all these over all these influential areas of you know state governance. Like it's through the Holy See. He's, I mean, it's it's unspoken, but it always seemed to me that yes, the Pontiff is the leader of the Holy See, but people like, if not Vendemian himself, are the ones that truly hold the strings yeah. behind how that power mm. is wielded. Yeah, the Pontiff is a figurehead, mm-hmm. and he's got power of his own, obviously, as the de facto leader, but. Uh, yeah, you can you can tell that uh, Federico de Vendimian is a yeah he's got a large chunk of actual power within that organization. 
Yeah, and uh, obviously it's it's well ahead of us to get to it, but I've al- I always wanted to see how someone who, you know, cemented their power in a civilized world like this would fare in the new world. And the answer is he wouldn't, you know, he'd have yeah. no basis for control anymore. Yeah. 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 We actually will get into it, uh, in, in, uh, in a few episodes with yep. mother, especially. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I do. Okay. Yeah. I'd also notice that, uh, dark horse misspelled Magnifico's name. Yeah. Or, yeah. It's, it's, it's G N in Italian. So they misspelled be. it the whole way. Yeah, the, because in Japan, like in Italian, you don't really pronounce the G. And so in Mura in Japanese, uh, in Katakana, he also didn't like spell it out. But yeah, it's written with a G. Like, uh, yeah, Magnifico. If there are no further comments, I will move on to the next episode, which is called At the Garden, or as I like to think about it, A Tale of Two Baths. <laughs> yeah, that's a good. That's a good one. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> I'm here all week. And it, and it is meant, I'm pretty sure Mura meant to like have these be contrasted. Absolutely. And we're going to get into it. Uh, the episode begins with Shirke attempting to give Casca a bath behind a makeshift curtain at their room at the inn. She's having a difficult time. Guts is lying in bed resting while Isidro is tied to a chair to prevent him from quote-unquote helping. <laughs> Casca slips out of Shirke's grasp, and when Isidro attempts to peep, he gets a face full of something and ends up knocked on the floor. Needless to say, the absence of Farnese and Serpico is resulting in chaos for the group. While attempting to wrangle Casca, Shirke gets flung out of her towel and blasts poor Guts with a spell, thinking that he saw her in her birthday suit, when he actually didn't. Guts, now the charbroiled swordsman, wonders aloud what happened to their missing companions. Cutting to the palatial bathhouse at the Vendimian estate, Farnese sits in a much fancier, more massive tub. She considers how this is the first time she's bathed alone in some time, thinking back to her time with Casca in Flora's tree mansion, and wonders if Casca is being washed properly while she's away. Farnese exits the tub when a maid informs her that her change of clothes has been prepared, and she's attended to like royalty by a handful of servants who dry her and help her get dressed. Despite clearly being in the lap of luxury, Farnese doesn't look happy at all. Suddenly, while being dressed, Farnese asks a maid what happened to her silver shirt and dagger. When the maid explains that they were damaged and are being discarded, Farnese immediately runs to retrieve her treasured possessions. Serpico, who's standing by a window waiting for Farnese, gets an eyeful of her in her chonies as Farnese rushes to get the items back. After suddenly intercepting their disposal, she cradles the precious shirt and dagger in her arms with a relieved expression. Magnifico arrives and comments that Farnese is as unprecedented as ever, and that it's no wonder that their father is amazed by her. Now walking together in the gardens of the estate, Magnifico comments on how he and Farnese never spent much time together before, he was se- before she was sent to the convent. Farnese, now fully clad in Vandimian finery, seems unhappy and anxious when Magnifico brings up her history with the Knights of the Holy Iron Chain, but he assures her that no fault lies with her. He says that their father deserves the blame for neglecting Farnese when she was vulnerable when she was a vulnerable child, and that he was complacent when the Holy See chose her as the figurehead of the knights. He recalls seeing Farnese wandering around like a ghost by herself in the gardens when visiting the mansion in the Holy City. Rather than raising her in solitude to protect her from the outside world, 
Magnifico suggests that their father abandoned his responsibilities to her and aimlessly left her to her own devices. As they continue their walk, Magnifico reveals his own resentment towards their father and his tendency to abandon members of their family who don't meet with his approval. Finally, he asks why Farnese has come to the estate. She explains her situation and how she and her friends haven't been able to secure a ship out of Rattanus. As they come to the ends of the gardens, Magnifico proposes that securing a ship for her friends wouldn't be beyond his power, but that he has a request for Farnese in turn. Back at the inn again, Puck and Isidro are racing crabs while Casca watches. Shirke lugs supplies up the stairs and complains that they're not doing anything to help and are just playing around while she does all the work. Shirke asks Isidro to help feed Casca and then attends to Gus, who she insists on feeding some medicinal soup despite his protests, or at least tries to before getting flustered. Just then, Serpico walks up the stairs to their room dressed in an outfit befitting a Vandemian servant. Serpico sadly explains that while a ship has been arranged for the group, Farnese won't be joining them on their journey. Uh, so like we talked about uh, just now, the episode focuses around the notion of family and how there's a stark contrast between Guts and the group and how Farnese fits into that group versus her biological family, which is, you know, very political and uh, kind of ruled by her father who casts people away if he doesn't approve of them and how Farnese sort of trapped in that situation. And even though she's in a very luxurious, you know, accommodations, she's obviously so unhappy and she can't help but think of her friends and her history with them and all that they've been to been through together. But she's trying to, you know, do something with what she's able to do with her power or at least her situation and that kind of brings Magnifico in and, and kind of gives it a chance for them to commiserate a little bit, or at least Magnifico's kind of commiserating with her. She's just kind of standing there and listening. But uh, yeah, I really like that contrast. I think another aspect that stood out to me about this episode is how Mira is showing just how important Farnese and Serpico are to the group and mm -hmm. how everyone plays to their strengths and is able to, you know move forward in an effective way and get to their goal uh, because they've learned to work with each other so well in the time that they've been together. Yeah. And without that, Shirke, I guess, has to take over. And she's having a really hard time, obviously, understandably, because Farnese has that bond with Casca that she just kind of seems to ignore Shirke otherwise. So I thought that was interesting. Um, again, with Magnifico, I, I really like that we're getting a, a glimpse of him before he, uh, completes his transformation into Kelsey Grammer and, uh, <laughs> just starts, you know, I, I appreciate that he, he's kind of talking at Farnese a lot and clearly like, you know, trying to butter her up a little bit with the, with the whole thing. It's like, yeah. oh, it's not your fault. Everything, you know, everything's dad's fault. It's all his fault. But he's at the same time. He's transparent what he's trying to yeah. do. It's kind of obvious. So he's kind of still, even this is before his his kind of buffoonery arc, <laughs> I guess you could call it. You kind of still feel like he's kind of a dum-dum and he's just trying to manipulate things, but not really doing a great job. Hmm. Um, well, I think what's interesting about his, you know, what's the word, half manipulation, mm -hmm. is that he kind of trips on his own shoes getting there because he, yeah. he reveals that he has personal hatred or passionate against his father as well. So mm. 
it's not like he's able to coldly manipulate the situation. He's like, ah, I hate him too. I hate him so much. You know, he just right, gets right. in his own way as he's trying to do that. Yeah, so it be- comes off as a little spoiled, but at the same time, it's also very genuine. Yeah. That being said, I have to mention that uh, some of the translation in that part is a little exaggerated. For example, Darkos has him say that bastard. What referring to his father, whereas in Japanese he just says Ano Otoko, uh, that man. That man. So yeah, and it's like the way Mira does it. Uh, he he puts uh, two little dots uh, next to these words with a, a form, a way to bold them. So it's like if he was speaking orally, it would be like that that man, putting a kind of a tone on it. But uh, yeah. yeah, it's kind of a stretch to change into bastard, um, and. What I'm, I'm at guessing it, it's super disrespectful not to call well, father. Yeah, I mean it is, but it's not to the point of calling him a bastard. And there is a yeah. there is a thing there is a great deal of that is lost actually in the translation here uh, from the Japanese because the suffixes are removed and uh, the way they refer to each other, the pronouns they use like omae or anta that kind of stuff is also like lost. There's actually a great deal that is lost here, and, and I, I don't know, that came up to me strongly during the reread, because, for example, when Shiruke is calling to Casca, for example, she's yelling, Casca! And uh, in English, you might think she's being a bit curt with her, or but she's actually calling her Casca-san. Uh, mm-hmm. And meanwhile, same way, when um, when Farnese refers to Magnifico, of course, she calls him by uh, a, a very polite word for her older brother, because she, he's a, her older brother and she's a, she's a younger. Uh, and the same thing with her father. She calls him very respectfully, what he does not. Um, there's very, yeah, there's a lot of stuff here, a lot of, uh, how to say, all of the family d- dynamics and the mm-hmm. way people will speak to their friends versus being spoken to when you're in this family environment that's very rigid and strict. Um, that comes across in Japanese, but in the English translation, it's lost. Uh, yeah, because there's no equivalent. As usual, the nuances of etiquette in the English-speaking world are. <laughs> yeah, well, wait. I mean, it's it's mostly it's more like the Western world, to be honest. It's not just uh, in, mm. you know in English, but yeah, I thought that was worth mentioning because there's a lot of stuff where you might get the wrong impression. Uh, mm-hmm. simply because you don't have that, that you know, those nuances. They are not there. Mm-hmm. Oh, Papa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, speaking of nuances, uh, one other thing I wanted to point out in this episode that I liked is how, because Guts is kind of out of action and stuck in bed, I think it gives him the opportunity to observe more about the group than maybe he normally would. He's just sort of lying there and, and not doing anything, and I think that that uh, you know, first of all, I guess Guts already being a perceptive guy can see that Farnese being a, gone is is really messing up the dynamic of the group. But him being passive and seeing everything probably hits home more for him that he's just seeing this chaos unfold and shirking, you know, <laughs> messing everything up in a really hilarious way. So mm. I thought that was a cool detail. Yeah. I mean, I love, so um, I have to say, there's really great comedy in that episode, mm-hmm. both at the beginning and the end. I think those are really great scenes and some of my favorite comedy in the series, basically, were, and it's especially, how to say, pleasing that Guts, who is kind of a grumpy guy at times, <laughs> he's in yeah. bed, so he's basically victim to it, mm-hmm. you know, the noise and everything else. 
But uh, I mean, even the stuff. So Isidro is being tied up because he he wants to pick, and it refers also to the the episode in the mansion. Uh, you've got Puck, who's like the owner for Nansen, with that yeah. little symbol, you know, for women and stuff. So that's also great. There's even the the milk distributor. So it's very very typically Japanese stuff. And yeah, okay. I don't know, just the way it unfolds with Casca, you know, sending Shiruke flying away, uh, the puns. You know, at some point, uh, Puck calls Isidro, uh, I think he, in, uh, Draco translates it as Isi chair, but basically it's a, it's a pun on the word for chair in uh, Japanese, which is Isu. So it's Isudoro instead of, uh, Ishidoro. So oh. yeah, just those, just those kind of things. Uh, and yeah, same, same for the end, uh, you know, with the crabs. Same thing. Crab is canny in Japanese. So for example, he's calling Kaningam. So it's like <laughs> it's like a boxer's name, you know, but uh. it's it's just it's a betting on crab. It's a very, very like super typical Japanese kind of thing. Uh Cunningham and, and Can Gonzalez, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah, it's just it's, I mean it's just silly stuff, but it's it's really great. Yeah. Also the ending of that first scene where, you know, Shirke torches guts. But he doesn't even really respond. He just starts thinking about, I wonder what's taking them so long, even yeah, though he yeah. looks completely <laughs> eviscerated. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's basically I, just trying to be patient. And the same thing when she I, she wants to feed him, it's just, it's so amazing. When she gets all flustered, <laughs> and he's like, and, and ends up throwing the thing in her face while Casca eats Puck. I mean, that's that's incredible to me. Yeah. Yeah. The, this first scene also ends with Isidro, like, face first in water, like a bucket of water. Oh, yeah. He's drowning, basically. He's in basically getting waterboarding himself. <laughs> it's too yeah. bad. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. I mean, everything, this... honestly, everything about this is, uh, is so great. Uh, it really, you know, I, I remember, Walter, you were, when the group was in Alfam, you were really longing for having a, an episode like that, which we kind of mm -hmm. got with episode 364, which is just... Like slowing down a bit, no action, no monster slaying and stuff, just uh, group dynamics. Uh, you know, little, just little pastiche of them being the, doing this and that and having their daily life. And yeah, that's great. I always love that stuff anytime we see it. Well, it's also yeah. smartly done in this episode because they're interacting with this particular space. It's not like this could have happened anywhere else. Like this, this comedy works because they are in a tightly enclosed space. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so like Isidro is, you know, inches away from what he wants, which is naked bodies. Right. And he's <laughs> shielded by Puck, who's acting like a bathhouse runner. He's like, you can't go in there. That's for ladies, buddy. You know, that's the, that's that. <laughs> that's half the joke. And then that ends up, you know, with guts being incinerated, all that stuff because they're in close proximity because they're in this little house. So, yeah. Yeah. Pretty right. funny stuff. Um, and, the and the comedy really works for this particular part of the story because it. Farnese going back to her family is so dark because it recalls that whole backstory for her, but with her and Serpico, and your mind is kind of in that dark place of like, oh, she was so isolated and sad, and it really made me sad to think about it. But then this was like a palate cleanser for that. Yeah, for sure. It's very lively. Of comedy. I came up with uh, two alternatives to easy chair. <laughs> I ha sorry to bring it back. Um, I came up with e stool dro. And Isitro. <laughs> Isitro would have been better. Yeah, yeah. Isitro yeah. is, is uh, honestly pretty good. So hats off to you, man. You could also do easy chair, like an, you know, lazy boy. Oh, yeah. yeah. Nice. Um, 
Going back to as far as when this episode first was released and back in 2005, I think it was, even to now, this scene, this panel of Shirke with her butt out has been controversial to people that are very prudish about butts. What, was um, it really controversial at the time? Yeah, I went, I went back and looked this morning. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, people were picking on it, um, using the word lolly, all yeah. sorts of stuff. And I think what may not, I th- honestly, I think what it comes down to is different cultures view you know, kid butts with certain, you know, rules attached to them. You can and can't do certain things, right? And here, I, it's just played for laughs. The, the joke is she's naked and she doesn't want to be naked in front of the guy she likes. And that's the whole joke. That's that's mm. the whole purpose of the whole joke. Um, it's not meant to sexualize her. Yeah. Uh, but I have certainly seen people say that over the years. It's the kind of thing I've heard lots of times. I'll, say, I'll say one thing. If you're using pornography terms refer to something as innocuous as that, mm-hmm. the problem probably lies with you and not with the actual story. Uh, and yeah, that, that's basically my comment on this, is that, I mean, as long as you're sexualizing children, like, that's the problem with you <laughs> to begin with. And so I kind of wonder even, like, how genuine these complaints are, honestly, and I mean, I, I'm a Westerner myself, but yeah, in France, I guess we'll, we're not as prudish as uh, the, you know, American people can be, you know, this kind of that wasp thing going on. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I feel like that's, I'm not sure that's very genuine. I mean, speaking as an American, it is rare to see a kid butt, um, you know, so I do think some people respond to that with like a sidelong glance. That's pretty normal. Uh, but I think the step is then to take, is that what the scene is trying to accomplish? Obviously it is not, you know? And mm. so to me, it's just kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Well, sure. I mean, you also see very few boobs in, in the U S like mm-hmm. the boob to uh, body count ratio is, uh, <laughs> quite high on the body count side of things, unless I'm mistaken. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, just saying, you know, versus again, in Europe, we, I'd say we are more, uh, Tolerant, liberal with nudity, and uh, maybe less with violence. Um, by the way, I do like the um, there's a little device, visual device Mira uses when Farnes is remembering the time she ba- based with Casca. Uh, she's mm-hmm. like she's got water in her hands, and she sees that little memory in that water within her hand. Uh, and I thought that was very creative. Oh, she- that's what's happening in that panel. That's really I had to look for that. Yeah. She's holding the water in her hands, and in that water, she's seeing the memory. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, so that was very creative, so, yeah. I also like the idea that uh, they were going to throw her silver equipment because it's, like, used. Mm -hmm. And that's also, it's such an interesting thing where for them, it's just decorative. So, like, the fact it's got even a nick or something like that, eh, you know, just throw it and get a new one. Yep. Right. That just shows how little it's worth to them, that silver. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a very, whereas, you know, people in the reward uh, will use something until it's, like, worn out. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Just, just interesting. Little things like that that indicate uh, the vast difference between these two worlds where, you know, you've got these perfect gardens, gold and silver everywhere, marble, luxurious clothes. And on the other side, you know, you got people who make do with uh, what they got. True, true. Um, A 
couple other things on this one in the garden scene with um, Manifico and um, Farnese. You know, we see this little silhouette memory of Magnifico seeing Farnese going through the maze. Uh, and she's actually, you can see the little rabbit she's holding there from all those volumes ago when we saw her as a kid always carrying around that rabbit. So the rabbit makes a little small appearance here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, notably about Magnifico, and we, we mentioned it a little bit earlier, but, um, you know, he's manipulating her, but... He's trying to turn her against uh, the following father's orders, really. But he's also casting the blame away from her and onto her father for probably seeding ground for a future manipulation, right? Um, mm. But it's not cold in the same way that his father's is. I feel like he's trying to emulate something. Yeah. Um, I, honestly, I don't think so. It's true he's trying to use her for his own purposes, but... I'm not sure we can even say he's trying to manipulate her, like, specifically. It's more like he sees probably an an ally in her and somebody he can use to his advantage. So, Mm -hmm. in a way, it's like, oh, yeah, all this stuff wasn't your fault, and uh, it's actually his fault, and he's done the same to me, so I'm like you, so basically you can trust me. You know what I mean? It's kind of a simplified version, but he's trying to curry favor and make her trust him by showing that they've got kind of a similar experience. And mm. even though they are not very close because no one in that family is very close to each other, he actually relates to her in a way a little bit. But ultimately though, it builds to a scheme against their father. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. you can actually tell when he gets the idea. True. I mean, it's not even necessarily against his father, actually. It's more like, it's a way for him to get something despite his father's wishes. It's not like he's trying to, you know what I mean? He's, he's not like trying to strike out against his dad. It's more like, well, if I do this, it will benefit me and my father won't be able to do anything about it. And of course, hmm. that backfires at the ball, which is uh, in, a, in quite a funny way. I'll have to refresh what happens in the next volume exactly. Because in my head, when I was reading this, I saw his rejection by his father earlier in the scene and his later manipulation of Farnese to Roderick and all that as a way to show that he's worthy and capable, you know, by using this surprise arrival of Farnese to outmaneuver his dad and kind of take her away and use her for another purpose, even if his dad had a purpose for her, that kind of thing. No, I don't think it's uh, even that specifically. When he's at the ball and speaking with Roderick, he explains that he wants uh, their two family will be allied. Uh, mm-hmm. through that and because he's going to announce it publicly his father won't be able to object and yep. he's got uh, his desire is to basically uh, set out new ventures in the wider world and Roderick also wants to sell the world and stuff so they kind of got this I mean honestly I think it's very well done kind of going ahead of ourselves here but it's very well done the way they come across as two bros with like big ambitions uh, and it really comes across, I don't know, it feels like a very faithful depiction of two young guys full of ambition, trying to strike it out. And, oh, these old fuckers, I don't know anything. I'll show them what I can do. So I think it's more like Federico didn't want to let him, uh, how to say, prove that he can or let him, how to say, uh, try to fulfill his ambition. And so Farnese is a way for him to do it despite his father's wishes. If you mm-hmm. know what I mean, I sure. think that that's that's a way. It's uh, it basically it's a way for him to go uh, above or past his father 
for his ambition uh, without asking permission, basically. Right. I don't have anything else about this episode. Uh, these this ne- this episode and the next two just are very dense. Uh, yeah, it's said that a lot in volume twenty nine, but it's true. Every page has lots to say. Um, a lot of action yeah. on each page. Yeah. All right. Well, then I guess I'll uh, go with the next one, unless anybody's got anything else to say. Go for it. All right. So uh, next episode is uh, a white lily in the field. Um, it starts with Serpico handing the group a letter that will allow them to commandeer a ship and returns the magical items they had received from Shirke. He won't answer the questions about why, and he even deflects God's tease about a rematch. But when touching his hand, Shirke felt that something was wrong, and God just knows there's more to it than a change of heart. So he tasks the elves with scouting the mansion and finding out what's going on. After having some fun, they stumble finally meeting her new fiancé in a rose garden. His name is Roderick, a naval officer and nobleman from the island nation of Is. He tries hard to woo her and succeeds a fair bit, showing he's not just in it for political gains. Having borne witness to the scandalous developments, the elves head back, but Serpico notices them flying off. Shuriki and Isidro try to make sense of this sudden development, but it's Guts who explains to them that it must have been a deal, an arranged marriage in exchange for the ability to requisition a ship. Just as they ponder what to do, Casca, who had been left to her own devices, drops the scroll down it rolls into the chimney, getting destroyed. That settles it, and they decide to go get Farnese back, as the price isn't worth it to them. So it's very dense. Uh, it's also a great episode with lots of stuff in it. I'll start by saying that Ivarela has some great moments in this one. Uh, <laughs> when witnessing Roderick's moves, for example, and then retelling them to the group. She's rarely at the forefront of the story, but I really enjoy it when she is. And so it's kind of incredible to me that Mira managed to write her so well, honestly, uh, given that she's kind of supposed to be a young, urban, uh, 20-something-year-old woman. So, uh, yeah, great, great moment, great fun, uh, and just uh, the elves in general. Uh, I also mentioned that when they set off, uh, Puck uses an expression which is wakwaku, to say that he's excited, and it's just a shout-out for those who like Spy Family, because Anya often uses that in that series, and yeah, Puck <laughs> does as well, so I thought that I was I think worth. about Kid Goku, back in Dragon Ball. Yeah, yeah. He said that all the time when he was about to fight someone strong or whatever. Yep, exactly. So, um, so yeah, uh, I thought that was fun to mention. Uh, also, of course, in the first page, Casca sucking on Puck, uh, which is something referenced in episode 264 with a boy. So like mother, like son, you know, uh, <laughs> great little thing and great enough that Mira remembered it. Um, Roderick's introduction as a sweet talking hunk is uh, quite potent. I felt like, uh, we didn't quite know what to make of his character initially from what I remember, but he does make a strong impression both of Farnese and on the reader. Uh, also, yeah. he does kind of give off Mosgus vibes on that shot where he grabs yeah. her shoulders, <laughs> and his face is so close, and he's got that white face. That's kind of he's kind of freaking there. Uh, so uh, yeah, maybe a little too pushy for pushy for modern standards. Uh, hashtag cancelled. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Anyway, he does uh, he does make an impression. 
yeah. it is very interesting to me to see Guts uh, struggle internally between his natural tendency to not get into other people's business and his pull of worrying about his companions and getting involved when he instinctively knows something's off. So I think that's a subtle but a great development for him. That's that side of him that's like, you know, he would usually just say, eh, not my problem, but he can't quite uh, resolve to just do that. So yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, this episode is also a continuation of the last one in showing that actually taking care of Casca and handling the food and so on are non-negligible tasks. Uh, something Grail talked about. It's a reminder that Guts didn't accept companions for nothing in Volume 23, and that it's not just something Shiruki or Isidro or Guts himself could do, right? Uh, so the idea that Farnes is a useless part of the group, for example, well, that's not, that's not quite true as these episodes, uh, these two episodes show. Um, another thing is, uh, I've seen people complain over the years that Casca's character was not given the respect she deserves because she remained uh, mentally impaired for so long and that she was basically useless and blah 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 but as these episodes show she remains at the core of the story even in that state uh, it's a different role obviously it's more of a comic relief thing and kind of a bumbling and so on but it's a, it's an important role nonetheless even a key role because she is impetus for a lot of these characters developments uh, she's the one that drops a scroll and gets into the fire and makes it impossible for, for them to actually requisition a ship uh, and so on. So, yeah, I just wanted to point that out, that Casca is important and she was important throughout that whole journey, even though she was not, I'd say she didn't have any real agency as a, you know, character that develops and so on, but she's still, yeah, she's still had a key role. And um, yeah, lastly, just a comment on the fact that Dark Horse writes ETH with two eyes and as an TH, which is from memory, uh, it's a spelling we used at Scholar.net for some years. But uh, I do think the, the name uh, is most likely spelled Y and S uh, after a mythical island from uh, Law uh, that's from Brittany, a part of France. Uh, yeah, mythical islands that sunk into the sea, and I think it's uh, probably a reference to that, and of course, kind of a reference to uh, to Britain, you know, Great Britain as a as an island nation. And that's about it for me. What did you guys think? Yeah, I loved how, like you mentioned, Roderick seems really hard to read, and I'm guessing that was Mira's intentions. Uh, like you totally expect someone that looks like fucking. Gaston to be like a total scoundrel (laughs) and I was just down the line I was really pleasantly surprised to see how genuine he was yeah he's not he's not a jerk and it's also an interesting thing is you expect an orange marriage by your brother and so on as a guy just he is like just for political motivations but actually he seems genuinely interested in uh, seducing her which is like huh interesting there's like uh, layers to this character. Right. Also, like how he woos her, like it, it would be simple enough for him to just, you know, say, well, she's my wife. Why do I, why do I need to even develop an interest in her? And yeah. why does she need to develop an interest in me? But he actually does a quite, quite a good job of charming her. And you can see a little bit of a reaction from her, even though obviously she just met him. But there's a reaction shot from her when he's talking about yeah. t- calling her a white lily of the field. 
There's a, there's a, yeah, there's a few actually where she's kind of blushing and stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, he does, uh, he does succeed. He's putting on the moves. Yeah, he's pretty. But yeah, also, actually, also after uh, that moment where he calls her interesting, and you kind of get that weird, like wide-faced expression. I really like how on the following page, he's kind of like bashfully, like you know, scratching his head a little bit and scratching his face. And you kind of get the feeling that he's uh, got a little bit of uh, humility there. He doesn't take himself too seriously in mm-hmm. that moment. So mm-hmm. I really liked how Mira immediately was like, hey, don't worry, this guy's okay. <laughs> <laughs> he also does a thing. He does like the picture frame thing with his fingers, which is such a, is such a move. Yeah. I, I remember <laughs> that, that amused me at the time. Right. Yeah, I, I, I can confirm that no one knew exactly what to make of Roderick because it certainly seems, based on the scenario, that it's just someone is going to take advantage of the Vandemian name, and that's all he's here to do is to exploit that attachment. But it's not. It's not that at all. And I'm, I'm, I am glad that Roderick turned into a real character, a cool character, who can stand on his own right. You know, Honestly, you could make a whole series about seafaring adventures of Roderick. I'd be all for it. I think it'd be cool. Well, I think, yeah, uh, Mori and Kurosaki are on the <sighs> side here. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no one knew what to make of him, and it, it did seem like he he might, you know, you could see how the scales would tip the other way under a different scenario. Yeah, I, we do, it does quickly show that he's not uh, a dirtbag, though, because even in the... Uh, in the ball episode, you know, when the ball is just beginning, uh, they're talking with Magnifico about their ambition and stuff. But when Farnese comes, he's like, all right, you know, enough of that. Uh, I got to meet my, uh, I don't know how to say Dulcine in English, my my betrothed, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. so, um, yeah. So he, we, we do see, I think, uh, fairly quickly that he actually really, really likes her for some reason. Yeah. Uh, what else? Uh, there's a lot of roses in this scene. I remember that really making an impression on me with the sheer amount of... It's one of those very, very detailed background elements uh, in this episode. And it's in several panels. It just seems almost egregious, the level of detail. It's one of those that, that really stuck out to me. Mm-hmm. Visually. Leaves an impression. Yeah, especially since uh, all these roses were bought by Roderick for Farnese as a, as a kind yeah. of gift. Again, well, a ladies' man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You mentioned Eva Lira, and my favorite moment, just wanted to point it out, is after they've engorged themselves on all the food. <laughs> yeah. You know, she's laying there like, oh, I'm so stuffed, I can't move. And then Puck is like kind of dozing, and then she starts kicking him, like, how can you be so lazy and just sleep there? Get it together. Like, she was just sleeping the last panel. Oh, man, that's a good one. Good stuff. I, I really like the part where uh, where Eva Lira sees that they've gotten engaged and says, you know what this is? It's a scandal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> With Almost her hear face it. smashed up against the glass. I love that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, for real. Well, I mean, yeah, so them being, having gorged themselves on pastries and, and she kicked him. It's very hard to say. I think that's a really recurrent motive for her where... She's an elf, and so she does elf things, but she always blames Puck and yep. try to distance herself from him while she's essentially the same. You know, she's yeah. like barely, barely a hair above in, in terms of uh, behaving and so on. So, yeah, it, it mm-hmm. is pretty funny. And you guys said it already, but I, I just wanted to put my foot in there as well. Is It is interesting to see Guts in this very introspective role for once. Uh, he, he, we know he's capable of it, but it's not that often that he's the one 
to pipe up with the correct, uh, oh, it's probably an arranged marriage, and that's what was collateral for the ship. And it's like, oh, yeah, you, you fucking nailed it, dude. That's a pretty good guess there. <laughs> yeah. Well, and he also he hesitates about whether he should even involve himself, as you said, you know. Hmm. It's what she decided herself, or so I'd like to think, is what he thinks to himself before he makes a decision. It's like, if that's what she wants, who is he to tell her otherwise? You know, that's a very guts thing as well. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the thing with the, him explaining it to the kids, I really like it because he shows... I mean, Guts is that kind of guy where he understands things very quickly, but he doesn't necessarily, like, speak his mind. That's mm-hmm. basically... Like, that's his entire character, right? The silent protagonist type. And so... And I like that, basically, Shuriken and Isidro are both, you know, they've got... Isidro's got instincts, and Shuriken's a, a bookworm, and, and so on. But for that kind of stuff, you know, that's the kind of stuff Guts will understand. And mm-hmm. them as kids who have not... Like, they have... Neither of them has been very, how to say, in a very social environment so far. You know, Isidro's been wandering from town to town. Ishuk is uh, being secluded in the forest. So it's something he's uniquely uh, positioned to to know and explain to them. So, yeah, I, I really like that. Yeah, I don't have anything else. It moves, this episode moves at such a pace. And I like I do love that we got this like elf escapade moment. It's kind of sandwiched in with the overall thrust of the episode. It's just there's mm. a lot more, lot going on here. Yeah, yeah. it's great. Uh, over to you, Gobs. All right. So episode two fifty three is called Mother. We return to Farnese to see her alone on a bench while snow is falling practicing her witchcraft, all while wearing an elegant dress. She struggles to conjure the form of an apple in her mind. Farnese finally recalls her recent magic studies with Shirke, noting that she felt it was a sign that something was going to change inside her. Now that she's back home with her family, she wonders if it was just silly child's play. It's as if her journey with Guts and his company was just a dream. She tells Serpico that she wanted to be useful to them. Farnese recalls how warm and comfortable she felt sitting at the fireside circle with everyone, but even though there was warmth, she could offer nothing in return. Her anxiety got the best of her, so she ran home to where she's accustomed, cold and enclosed. Just as Serpico is about to console Farnese, her mother appears. Farnese fills her mother in on what's been going on with her life since she last saw her. Lady Van Dimian is surprised to hear that Farnese is betrothed. When her mother asks her if there are any other men she is fond of, Farnese thinks of guts and becomes a bit shy, unable to fully respond. Mama Van Dimian notes that Farnese is sort of out of sorts. And she hardly seems like the same girl who had her father at a loss. She tells Farnese that she that her father fears her and that he's weak. Farnese has always expressed her unutterable, repressed feelings through unpredictable fable behavior. And that's why her father feel, fears her. He hasn't the strength to comprehend her. Lady Van Dimian tells her, if she were ever to find a place in this world for her own, because she is more familiar to pain than most, it's possible that Farnese could become kinder than anyone else. 
She tells her mother that there's a government-sponsored ball being held in anticipation for the departure for the front. Hearing that Magnifico told Farnese that she must attend, her mother decides to tag along. We then cut to Guts, Puck, Isidro, Shirke, and Casca as they try to find the entrance to the Vandimian family estate. Guts insists to Isidro that there's no need to sneak in, since, you know, after all, they're just there to see Farnese. Shirke wants things to return to how they were, as fast as possible. And just then, Farnese's coach, coach rides by the group, along with Serpico on his horse. Alright, so, a couple things. Uh, The image of Farnese practicing magic in her over-the-top fancy outfit works really well, because at this point, we, the reader, know she doesn't belong in this place, and she even knows it. Uh, After all the experience she's had, how how can she possibly go back? I just noted as well that Serpico and Farnese's relationship is very special. His loyalty to her is unwavering. It's also clear to me that he knows that being part of Guts's crew has been healing for her, despite the danger that they've experienced. Mira must have had a field day designing everything in this part of the story, from the clothing to the estate. Even the carriage was fun to look at, with the clover family crest and the trumpeting cherubs. <laughs> <laughs> The shot of Farnese and her mother on the bridge was a particularly nice one to me. Kind of showed me that despite the two not seeing each other very much, there was some closeness there. Um, Farnese's mother herself was a very interesting character and a breath of fresh air. It was apparent that she was someone who valued a bit of freedom and didn't seem entirely impressed with the world of the nobles. From this conversation, it, it was all—it almost seemed like she was finally seeing her daughter as a kindred spirit, and that's what I got. And I'm sorry I stumbled a lot with with my explanation when I'm talking into the microphone because of how we're set up on Skype. I ha- have this like echo going in my ear of my own voice the whole time, so I have to <laughs> ignore—I have to ignore the other gob while I talk. Damn, <laughs> hmm. schizophrenia, huh? Tough oh, yeah. stuff. Well, yeah, um, yeah. Farnese's mother is an interesting, uh, definitely most interesting part of this episode, which is why it's uh, named after her, I guess. Um, yeah, I do think she's a very interesting character. She adds a big puzzle piece to the Vandimian family. Uh, she also reveals a lot about uh, Farnese's father, which I think is pretty exceptional storytelling uh, because it really reverses the view when Farnes is first introduced, it's already emphasized way back in uh, volume 22 that she's all alone and that's what drives her to, to strike out and, and become half crazed, basically. And, and here her mother explains that, uh, that really destabilized her father. And, uh, basically she casts him in a whole other light, uh, as not an all controlling, all powerful guy, but rather someone who's pretty afraid and weak and, uh, not as strong as he sets out to be. So that was interesting to me, very interesting. I also think she herself is very, like, she's completely unapologetic. She's basically, yeah, I, I didn't raise you, 
but uh, maybe my bad example, uh, you know, you, you maybe you took after me, basically. Uh, which yeah, like Serpico's little. Uh, yeah, it's like, did she really say that? Yeah, <laughs> which you know, honestly, might be the case, and and you also can tell, like she she's a woman who does not live with her husband, basically. She travels the world, probably has lovers everywhere. She's basically yeah. They are the typical example of a political marriage where they got married. She gave him like four kids. Uh, and then, you know, she just does whatever the fuck she wants and he's busy with his work. So he has no time. So mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of an interesting, uh, interesting dynamic, basically. So yeah, I also thought that was interesting. And finally, just uh, again about the uh, suffixes and pronouns and stuff. Their mother, she calls for Farnese and Magnifico, she calls them San. So it's Farnese San, Magnifico San. And of course, Farnese calls her, you know, uh, Sama and that kind of stuff. So it's all, again, a reminder that, because in English you might think, oh, she's calling her, you know, she's speaking like to her daughter, but it's still a very formal and rigid way of speaking. Mm. They're not being very familiar with each other or anything like that. So it's, again, a very, how to say, it's a stark contrast with how people like within the group they speak to each other basically, so I thought that was uh, yeah that was interesting. Right. Yeah, her mom comes across as worldly but not boring as a result of being worldly, which you know you can see. Imagine you pluck any woman out of that ball scene, and there's a chance that they probably wouldn't be as interesting as she is. She seems very aware, hyper aware of her circumstance in a way that's almost sardonic the whole scene which I yeah. thought was really interesting. Mm. She is, um, I mean, you, you, Azil, you said something I wanted to comment on that she reveals that Van Demian himself is weak because he not necessarily all powerful, but I think he kind of is powerful because he knows he's weak. You know, he has to place himself and place his lineage and circumstances of power so that he can retain power mm. and so that he can manipulate because I feel like he probably knows He's weak, you know. I don't think it's like a mystery. Maybe it is to anybody that doesn't know him, I guess. My point yeah. is that he probably knows his own limitations as well. Yeah, but I mean, it's not... To me, it's a matter of sort of self-confidence. Whereas mm-hmm. the way she says it, it, it's also very reminiscent of Farnese herself, where she had this fear of the unknown, of things she couldn't control, mm. fear of the dark. And, you know, uh, if you contrast that with her journey with uh, Shiroke of understanding the world, but there's also another case, which is Guts. Guts, there's a lot of things he doesn't control, but he has like supreme confidence in himself. He knows his limits. He knows his capacities. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's also, you know what I mean? He's the kind of guy who comes in a situation, he quickly assesses it, and then he reacts accordingly. He's not afraid of something he doesn't understand or he doesn't control. So I think putting all these characters next to each other or comparing them against one another, you get a very different, uh, how to say, ways of being and thinking and, and having confidence in themselves. And I feel like this is also a way of explaining both from her mother's side and her father's side how far as they came to be this person. And of course, I mean, her mother also has a lot of things to say uh, even later on about how she went through a lot of pain and so she has a potential to show a lot of ki- great kindness but basically, yeah, it's a way of uh, further explaining how Farnese's character came to be, uh, in my opinion. Yeah. On that note, I, I wanted to touch on that line, how she talks about Farnese's experience and how, you know, she engages with the world. And I, reading that from the perspective of, 
And what we know now, it's almost like she was making the case for why Farnese uh, became adept at magic in the way that she did and and that kind of, the kind of magic that she was going to specialize in. It really made me think about how Farnese's mother seemed to perceive that and was like, mm. because of the pain she experienced, that allows her to heal others potentially. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Well, even though we, yeah, we don't know the details of what kind of uh, things she would have done. But yeah, the, I think the, specifically, I mean, if you just uh, stick to that point of time in the series, the fact she's taking care of Casca and, yeah. and we saw in the cave with the trolls, that was also something she took hurt from, uh, and, and that gave her courage. And the fact she wants to learn magic to better understand the world which is also a way for her to not be afraid of it anymore. I mean, all of that is very resonates with each other, right? Right. So, pretty cool. You guys mentioned family a couple times here and that determining the kind of person Farnese was based on her, not just her upbringing, but also her nature from her parents. Um, it's a very rare glimpse at families because it's not something that Miura does in Berserk. You know, you can count them on your hand, the amount of families and family circumstances that we've gotten close proximity to. You yeah. know, Charlotte's doesn't really count because we, we got to know her dad and that's it, right? Uh, there's Jill and her parents. Guts in the corpse. <laughs> Guts in the corpse, <laughs> the tree, yeah. Well, but, mean, you know, hmm? yeah, adopted family also counts. I mean, I think... You can't say Gambino wasn't Cut's father. It's a it's a pretty big deal to him. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Well, still, I count that as one family on your fingers. There, you know, that's my sure. point. Is that it's not something he's done that often. And, and to go to this level, to this depth, you know, the last yeah. episode was very Federico focused, or two episodes ago, and here it's very mother focused. We got a little Magnifico. We're, we're learning quite a bit about the personalities surrounding the Vandemians. Uh, so yeah, it's a really deep look at one family. Yeah, it's true, and it's not uh, it's not done very often. Neither Isidro, Shiruke, Griffiths, mm-hmm. these are all characters for whose you know their family didn't play a big part. Even Casca, we get a little flashback, but her family is basically uh, just a background for it. So, yep, mm-hmm. yeah. One thing, um, one thing that I think is worth mentioning is that when Farnese thinks about guts, she reflects that he's not really like a a romantic partner or anything like that. And uh, I think even at the time, it shows that she already knew then that he he was more of a, I wouldn't say role model, but somebody she was idolizing or, mm. again, kind of like Casca uh, with Griffiths back in the Golden Age days. Not necessarily somebody she really loved, uh, wanted to, to be with uh, romantically, but something a little different. And that's already, uh, how to say, sets up the pieces for her letting go of him eventually. So I thought that was a, that was also an interesting thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One other thing about Federico, there's this, um, that whole sequence about him being weak, but yet he manipulates the world. There's that cool little map behind him that is the most map-like that we get from Mira, uh, I think, in the whole series. Well, we also get one uh, when Griffiths is uh, speaking about establishing the Second Empire. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this, okay, another one then. Yeah, Pretty sure. Cool. But but we yeah we don't get many, so your point stands. Okay. Uh, the other thing about Federico is it's interesting to consider that when do you recall the Volume Five conversation between Griffith and Gutsau? 
Griffith wanted to become one of the people behind the scenes of power in the world. He says, there are those that hold the hmm. the keys to the world, etc. Golden rule speech. You know, Vendimian is kind of one of those people. You know, yeah. he does have his hand on the wheel of the world. But at the truth is that at the, his core, he's weak and he's doing those manipulations to insulate himself from his own, you know, from, his, from insulate his, himself and his family from chaos because he's afraid of the world, which is very different from someone like Griffith, you know? So it's just funny to consider Griffith aspiring to be someone like this, but someone like this is, in in their core, not really a strong person. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, Vanimion is pretty much the kind of guy Griffith wanted to overthrow, to take his place, basically. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he's... I wouldn't say he's just like the nobles that ended up burning in that building with the queen, but yeah, he's... He's one of those guys, uh, and Griffiths, his ambition was to basically, I mean, you know, Vendimian, of course, we don't know his circumstances, but I'm going to guess he was born in a family that was already very wealthy. And he just, like, within that thing, he became more powerful and he established it bigger. But it's not like he started with nothing. Yeah. So, again, he's one of those guys who, so again, it's, it's, a, it's a speech Griffiths gives where it's like people who just get something at birth and they rule because it's like that and that's not the order he wants for things. Uh, so, yeah, he's, he's, they are very opposed characters, uh, you know, from that time period, you know, Golden Age uh, with uh, Benjamin now. Mm-hmm. One thing that... Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, one thing that amused me is uh, when Isidro's like, what are we going to do? And Gus is like, oh, we just walk right in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we'll just go there and see. And it, it just made me laugh because yeah. that's so, like, guts. It reminds mm-hmm. me of him when he wants to go visit Griffiths when he's wounded in the Golden Age. And yeah. Oh, yeah. ends up punching him in the face. He's just like, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll write in, no problem. I'll just, if the guards try to stop us, I'll just knock them out. It's, mm-hmm. you know, you can't, you can't do that. I mean, mm-hmm. you can if you're guts, but <laughs> normal people don't do that. No, you can't just walk right in is that mansion and, and say, oh, yeah, I'm going to go see Farnese's. That's not... I mean, even Farnese herself, when she went to see her father, she had to show the sword, she had to get announced, she had to say her name. And even then, she could only get like a meeting in the hallway. So it's just... I don't know, that just amused me. It's, it felt so like him. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah. you know, that's the kind of situation where if Casca had been... Healed already, she might have punched him in the face again. <laughs> and it's one of those things that's played for comedy because obviously it was never actually um, a thing that was going to happen based on the way the story goes, you know? Yeah. It wasn't like they ever were going to have that moment because they are now going to the ball. Yeah. But I, I do like that even Isidro himself knows like, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's going to spell trouble. <laughs> it's also funny that Guts is the adult in the group at this point. You know, there's Casca doesn't really count. You know, yeah. so it's Guts, the adult, the very knowledgeable adult that knows adult things, saying, "Yeah, we're just gonna walk up there, fully well, armored." Well, and, we'll do it my way. Yeah, just yeah. barge in, <laughs> and if anybody says anything, I'll just cut them down. Yeah, we go bonk them in the face with your staff. We just keep on bonking people. We'll get through it. Yeah, I guess that's it. Uh, that's the end of the episode. I uh, don't have anything else lined up for this one. So we will be back in a month to discuss the next two, the final two of volume 29 and anything else that arises between now and then. There's a lot to see, uh, lots of spectacle to come. And uh, even this, this is the, I feel like the ball is the true beginning of yeah. 
the next huge sequence that doesn't end until what, like 33, 32? Yeah. Wow. We get, uh, yeah, we get a little bit more of the social slash political stuff with the episode of the bull, and then uh, Gus Group arrive, and then it starts it's being on. like nonstop action. Yeah, for, for like for quite a while. Yeah, for like three volumes or something. It's uh, it's quite wild. Nice. Yeah, I think I said so after we were done recording uh, last time, but I didn't say it on the show. And that is, this sequence is unique to me because it's the part of the series where I wasn't reading it as closely as I was every other episodic. It's because I didn't live in a place that had internet. And so to get internet, I had to drive a bit to, so I wasn't checking the form as much. And thus I wasn't checking Berserk as much. So as a result of all that, the reason I say all that is I have reread and read this particular part of the series, probably the least amount of times uh, compared to other parts of the series. So it feels more raw or more fresh to me than any other part of the series. Oh. It's funny. I remember these episodes specifically, like uh, the ones after that, the ball and the duel and stuff. I remember like where I was when I read them, hmm. which is not something I do a lot. Like my memories are very fuzzy yeah. f- from that era. But uh, yeah, I do remember that uh, quite well. Some of them I do remember like exact time and place. In fact, like this one here, the one volume 29 ends on is the duel, right? That episode yeah. is, that's when I was visiting you in 2005. Yeah, that's why I remember it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. Well, that's it for this episode, guys. Thanks for listening in, and we'll be back in a month. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. The Skullcast is a production of Skullnight.net, a Berserk fan community. If you like what you heard, please visit patreon.com slash sknet. Donations there do not go towards the podcast, but instead toward our resident translator, Puela, who ensures that our members have access to high-quality, text-based translations of Berserk. Puela has also been translating interviews with Berserk's creator, Kentaro Miura. Many of these interviews have never been translated into English, so it's very exciting to read those. That kind of work simply wouldn't have happened without support from our donors. If you'd like to chip in a buck or two, please know that it all helps. Once again, that's patreon.com slash sknet. If you have a question or want to comment on the podcast, visit our forum, skullnet.net slash forum. Near the top, you'll see a section devoted to the podcast. There's always an active thread in there, so go ahead, leave a post, and someone's sure to respond quickly. Thanks for listening.